Hello, I'm Earl Fontenelle, and you are listening to The Schwepp, the secret history of Western esotericism podcast, online at schwepp.net. Episode 69, Myths of Cosmic Ascent in Plutarch. We've seen how Plutarch deals with a beautiful, resonant, mythic story, the Egyptian story of Isis and Osiris. Now we turn to our final episode in our series on Plutarch and discuss Plutarch not as an interpreter of myth, but as mythmaker, storyteller, creator of his own stories with a philosophical message. There are three such myths which concern us all appearing in the Moralia, the grab bag of the rest of Plutarch's writings, which are not the parallel lives. See episode 67 on how Plutarch's writings have been organized by scholars. Each account occurs within a larger frame narrative, in each case a dialogue. So we are in Platonic territory here. Plutarch's dialogues are very different from Plato's. In fact, they owe something to the precedent set by Cicero, himself following Platonic models, in the first century BCE. But they of course look to Plato as their exemplar in many ways. The relationship between Plutarchian and Platonic dialogue is a huge topic, and in this episode we can only hope to note a few salient points, but we shall do our best. Particularly interesting from the perspective of the history of Western esotericism is what Plutarch does with the lore here. He's addressing themes like fate of the soul after death, oracular divination, virtue and vice, and initiation into philosophic mysteries, all themes found prominently in Plato, but he's doing new things with them, living as he does at the height of the Roman Empire, when astronomical ideas, Hellenistic cosmology as discussed in episode 40, a new prominence to daimones in Greek religion and philosophical religion, and a kind of revival of oracle culture are all factors which did not apply in Plato's day, but are very much at the forefront of the thought world in which Plutarch lives. Thus, his thought world is very much a post-Hellenistic thought world, and that's where we need to locate these myths. Now, there's a single theme which all of Plutarch's myths share, and this is where lovers of Western esotericism should sit up and take notice. Each one is a narrative of cosmic ascent. Now, the myth of Ur in Plato's Republic, Book 10, is a key model for all later ascent accounts. But wait, I hear you say, we listened to episodes 30 and 31 where you talked about said myth of Ur, and it was clearly a catabasis story, a journey down to the underworld. Okay, there was an ascent again at the end, when Ur's soul returns to his body to tell everyone about what the underworld is like, but the main point is a descent. And we also listened to episodes 33 and 34 where you talked about the ascent narratives in Plato like the myth of the Phaedrus and the mysteries of Diotima in the Symposium. Are you telling us that a catabasis myth is somehow more important for this later Platonist ascent trope than the obviously ascent-oriented stories in those other dialogues? No, gentle listener, that's not what I'm saying. We'll get to all that. But first, we can surely agree that there's nothing better than a good story. So let's just put aside the whole Plato question for a moment and dig Plutarch's myths. Having checked them out, we can come back to some questions of interpretation, source criticism, and the significance of them in the larger Western esoteric scheme of things. And it's worth going through these myths just for their own sake, as they're really, really fascinating and seem to be very little known outside the world of Plutarchian studies or the study of Platonism. So let's start with our first 
ascent myth. This account appears in the work given the Latin title De Serra Numinis Vindicta, or On the Lateness of Divine Vengeance, a moral inquiry examining the reasons why some people appear to do evil and get away with it, and so forth. The moral being that, as the old Christian saying has it, the mills of the Lord grind slow, but they grind exceeding fine, which is actually an ancient Greek saying. Or put into normal language, the gods may take their time for reasons best known to them in their wisdom, but they will get you in the end. And this divine reckoning may well occur in the afterlife. We know the text was written sometime after 81 CE, because the Sibyl in the story, whom we'll meet shortly, foretells the eruption of Vesuvius, which occurred in 79 CE. So we shall assume that this is an ex eventu prophecy and was written after the eruption. The narrator, Plutarch himself, in propria persona, so something Plato never appears in, is together with his brother Timon and their friends Olympichos and Patrocleas. They're all hanging out under a portico in Delphi. Some Epicurean on his way past them casts a few barbed remarks to the effect that divine providence is a load of nonsense. Plutarch and his friends are put out by this and decide to refute this position in a discussion. There follows a longish logos, or argued series of propositions delivered by Plutarch on how divine providence is real. But the bit that concerns us is the myth, the next section of the work. Plutarch relates that what he's going to tell is a story he heard, which he considers a logos but which he fears his listeners in the dialogue will consider mythos. Now, there's a lot of play in this work and in the other works we're going to look at in this episode with the platonic distinction between these two types of texts, logos and mythos, and much second sophistical playfulness with such genre distinctions, which interested listeners will want to check out. But the mythos part of the narration is what interests us here, so we're just going to concentrate on that and not get too into the play across the categories that's going on between Logos and Muthos in these works. The Muthos goes something like this. A certain man, Aridaeus of the island of Soli, lived a life of dissipation. Having squandered his fortune, he then resorted to knavery of the basest sort in order to try to regain his fortune. He was universally held in contempt, but the worst blow to his reputation came from an oracle, the oracle of Amphilochus in Kilikia, which said of him, Praxe Beltion Hotan Apotane, he will do better once he's dead. And that is how it turned out, though not in the way you might expect. He fell and hit his neck, dying from the trauma. But on the third day after his death, at his funeral, in fact, he revived paralleling Ur in Plato's story, Republic 614b, and he went on to live the life of a super-trustworthy, exemplary, pious man. And he told of his experiences after he had died, or almost died, which serve as an instructive lesson for us all. When the pronoun, the thinking part of him, was detached from his body, he ascended into the region above the earth. And here we'd better quote the Loeb translation of his account in detail, because it's pretty extraordinary. Quote, He said that when his intelligence was driven from his body, the change made him feel as a pilot might at first on being flung into the depths of the sea. His next impression 
was that he had risen somewhat and was breathing with his whole being and seeing on all sides, his soul having opened wide as if it were a single eye. But nothing that he saw was familiar except the stars, which appeared very great in size and at vast distances apart, sending forth a marvelously colored radiance possessed of a certain cohesion, so that his soul, riding smoothly in the light like a ship on a calm sea, could move easily and rapidly in all directions. End of quote. Now this passage is a very interesting bit of post-mortem phenomenology, quite different from what we find in Plato's Myth of Ur, for example, but the narration then returns to a more narrative vein. Nevertheless, it's worth contemplating those remarks. The soul, or the phronon, freed from the body, is a kind of omnidirectional sense organ, but the stars don't look like they do to us in our bodies. They're multicolored, and the light from them provides a kind of um, highway upon which he can travel around at great speed. Resuming the narrative, his soul, or his phronun, ascends to a higher realm, and here we literally mean higher, as he's rising up through the envelope of elemental air, which surrounds the earth below the moon in Hellenistic cosmology. He's ascending to its highest, most pure level, and the narrator is surrounded by a fire-like bubble, which then bursts, and human forms emerge. So it's a bit unclear what's going on here, but presumably he's one of the human forms. And it sort of pops, and they all fly out. Some fly straight up, while others sort of meander about like spindles, so presumably they're whirling in circles in some fashion. He recognizes some friends, but they're frenzied with fear, while others, higher up in the pure region of the sphere he's in, are hanging out together in joyful conviviality, while shunning the more perturbed souls by contracting into themselves to avoid contact with them. So these souls, these disembodied souls, are kind of able to change their form, and depending on the state of them, they're either in confusion or on a kind of mission to the higher reaches, although they might stop and have a, a delightful chat with some other pure souls on the way. So we have the same sort of story as we find in Plato's Myth of Ur here, but the initial sorting of the souls is taking place not in the underworld, but in the heavens. A soul of a kinsman then approaches our deceased narrator. Here is the underworld guide figure, and says, Greetings, Thespesius. Our guy says, I'm not Thespesius, I'm Aridaius. Not anymore, you're not, he replies. The name Thespesius means something like the marvelous. So our post-mortem narrator has been renamed, marking the break with his old identity. But his kinsman tells him that he isn't dead either, for the dead neither cast a shadow nor blink, and Thespesius does both. So he's somehow alive in the realm of the dead, or quasi-alive, and it's above the earth in the elemental region of air. His lower soul is still attached to his body, however, so he's not truly dead, but he's cataleptic. His body looks dead. Now, the kinsman of Thespasius may not be exactly what he seems. He is described as, as Thespesiu psychopompos, Thespesius's psychopomp, which is a traditional epithet of Hermes, the leader of souls, leader of the souls of the dead, to their final resting place and is generally more the sort of thing you say about a god than a deceased human soul, and later on he is simply called Hodaimon, the daimon. Thespesius, for it is now he, then describes the different appearances of the different kinds of souls. Some are bright, 
others are scaly and mottled. His kinsman explains the various lusts these souls are suffering from and the various punishing goddesses who purge them of, of these lusts. There follows a swift journey over an immense distance with the guide. They come to a chasm of some sort. And at this point, Thespesius's power deserts him, and they have to land and walk. And so land has somehow appeared in the heavens. He walks around this chasm with the other souls. This place is the way Bacchus, another name of Dionysus, the great Greek death and resurrection god, had passed on his journey into death. This is the chasm of Lethe, the river of forgetting, known from traditional Greek underworld, from the Orphic gold tablets, from the myth of Ur, and so forth. But now it's been transposed to the sky. This chasm is a garden of delights, full of the tempting sorts of pleasures found on earth, and here the souls take on a heavy, moist principle which draws them back to the life of the flesh. We suspect in this passage a reference to mystic initiatory uh, myths from the Dionysus cult here, but we can't prove it, so I'll just put that out there and pass on. Then Thespesius sees an enormous mixing bowl or bowl-shaped space with different colored streams flowing into it, representing truth and confusion. This is the oracle of night and the moon, where dreams come from. Indeed, the action seems now to have shifted to the lunar sphere, although this isn't entirely clear because other world geography rarely is. Three daimones sit around this crater in a triangle, again echoing Plato's Republic 617b, and they're mixing the streams. This is presumably why dreams can tell us the truth, but it's always mixed up with confusing imagery and so forth. So the, the truth and the confusion are sort of mixed together by these daimones. Thespasius can go no further at this point, on account of a cable stretching back to the earth, connecting him with his body. He then hears the voice of the Sibyl who lives on the moon, or maybe orbits the moon, and various items of prophecy follow, including the future eruption of Vesuvius, which we mentioned earlier. So this figure of the Sibyl on the moon is very mysterious, very weird, and we shall return to it in a moment. At this point, the momentum of the moon drives Thespesius off course so we note how the planetary motions are a significant part of the whole otherworldly scheme being constructed here, and sends him to a realm of punishment, which he observes. There follow some scenes of hideous punishment of wrongdoers, eviscerations, flayings, uh, all manner of tortures, and we've suddenly become rather physical in our description of the souls in torment, including the instructional case of the soul of the Emperor Nero. He is being punished for his violent life by having been transformed into a poisonous snake. However, he has a relatively light sentence because he granted political independence to the Greek cities within the empire in the year 68 CE. Thus, for the patriotic Plutarch, it's enough to make his lot in the afterlife somewhat better than it would otherwise have been that he did this favor to the Greeks. Now, these torments are represented as being penitential. In other words, they are to prepare souls for reincarnation on earth, to purge them of the worst of their uh, sins through punishment. They're not simply a kind of hell where you just get punished eternally. The idea is that you're going through a kind of mill, and when you come out the other side, you'll be able to try again. Finally, 
the cable draws Thespesius back to his body, and he awakens. The work abruptly ends here. Now, there's a lot to discuss in this myth. First of all, we have the sublunary region as a place full of wandering souls, not entirely different from the ideas of Philo of Alexandria, who, as we have seen, sees the heavens as full of souls moving up and down toward and away from God. But Philo never, to my knowledge, describes a heavenly topography which transposes key mythical elements from the traditional underworld into the sky. We've seen here a lot of riffing on Plato's account of Ur, the theme of the man who dies and comes back to life dramatically, and a host of other details. But the whole catabasis theme, the whole theme of going into the underworld, has been relocated to the heavens. Specifically, Aridaeus Thespesius is wandering in an otherworld located between the earth and the moon. As with other worlds generally, the landscape, if we can use that term, isn't exactly stable or logical with chasms and other mysterious details, but nevertheless, we seem to be dealing with a celestial afterlife. Plutarch is not alone here. There is a general move among Platonists to locate the abode of souls, Hades in fact, in the sky. Here we are dealing with the elemental realm, either of air or of fire normally. Listeners will recall that Aristotle had posited above the earth three other elemental realms. So the earth is earth, of course. Then you have spheres of water, air, and fire, respectively, below the moon. And this idea had become a generally accepted part of Hellenistic cosmology. But Plutarch is populating it with spirits of the dead, some hanging out in a celestial Elysian fields type scenario, while others whirl about in confusion and are punished by avenging goddesses. Now, we have evidence that the idea that the souls of the dead go up rather than down, of astral immortality, went back very far into pre-Socratic philosophy. We don't really find it in Plato, however. Nevertheless, it becomes a basic Platonist doctrine, with many variant understandings of how and where different aspects of the soul's journey take place. We shall encounter the astral afterlife again in the history of Western esotericism, so keep it in mind. Now, the Sibyl on the moon and the Oracle of Night and the Moon are my favorite part of this story. The Sibyls, for listeners who may have forgotten who they are, are legendary female seeresses who originated in Greek lore and were adopted by the Romans as well. In the underworld descent in Virgil's Aeneid Book 6, Aeneas's guide is in fact a Sibyl, the Sibyl of Cumae. They are immortal or semi-immortal, inspired women who go into a frenzy and prophesy about coming events. They will crop up again and again in the history of Western esotericism for sure, so remember the Sibyls. The Sibyl on the moon, though, is perhaps the single most weird and wonderful of all the Sibyls recorded in the annals of history. Now, moving on, we have to turn to a second treatise, the De Genio Socrates, on Socrates' daimonion. The daimonion, the little daimon, we recall, is Socrates' personal oracular voice, which first appears in the Apology of Plato. It warns him off from making mistakes, though it never gives positive recommendations. It's like a little voice in his ear, but it's a divine voice, and this dialogue of Plutarch's tries to explain exactly what it is in terms of Platonist theory of body, soul, and noose. So, our story now takes place in Athens during Plato's day 
around the year 379 BCE when Thebes was liberated from Spartan control. So we have a fairly set dramatic date for this one. Simeas is the narrator of our myth. Yes, the same Simeas, whom alert listeners will remember as one of the interlocutors of Plato's Phaedo, and who, along with his friend Cebes or Cebes, is presented by Plato as an Italian philosopher, by which is meant a Pythagorean philosopher. The interlocutors in this dialogue are discussing exactly how the daimonion of Socrates worked. And Simeas gives the theory that Socrates had a kind of direct line to the divine, apprehending a non-linguistic language in his noose. So the daimonion is speaking to him, but not in language. Simeas then says, I've heard a story about this, but it's more of a mythos than a logos, so I'd better not tell it. Of course, the other characters say, tell it, tell it. So he tells the curious tale of Timarchus of Geronea, Plutarch's hometown, and the peculiar experience he had at the Oracle of Trophonius. Now this Timarchus is a friend of Simeas and Cebes and of Socrates' son, and he wants to know how Socrates' daimonion works. So he went to the Oracle of Trophonius, performed the rites, and descended into the cave. Now, the Oracle of Trophonius was a truly weird oracle, quite unique in ancient Greece, as far as we can tell. Trophonius was a hero, otherwise pretty obscure. His oracle was a cave in Boeotia, so quite near where Plutarch was from. One descended into the cave, having prepared with a few days of fasting and rituals beforehand, and with the aid of the priests of the sanctuary. Once you were in this cave, which was quite small, as Pausanias, a writer of a sort of guidebook to the cities and sites of ancient Greece, tells us, you went to a small opening at the bottom of one of the cave walls, maybe two feet high, something like that. So quite a small little opening. You put your feet into the opening, and you were then yanked right through the hole by some unknown agency into total darkness, where Trophonius would reveal things directly to you in dreams. We are thus looking at an incubation sanctuary, but a particularly scary incubation sanctuary, and the experience of Trophonius's oracle was proverbial for terrifying people witless. It was said that visitors to the oracle forgot how to laugh. So that's the oracle of Trophonius used by Plutarch as a fictional setting for his frame narrative. See the next episode for more on this fascinating place, because there is a lot more to say about it. But for now, let's see what Timarchus learned down there. So he went down into the cave. Here we have an old-school catabasis, right? He's going down into the earth. And he stayed there for two days. Everyone thought he was dead. So again, we have the theme of the dead person who isn't really dead. But he reappeared after two days with a radiant countenance. This descent into a cave and a death-like state, followed by reappearance, is an ancient trope associated with the Pythagorean tradition and the so-called Greek shamans. And indeed, one such shaman is referenced later in the work. Hermodorus of Clazomenae, he's more normally known as Hermotimos of Clazomenae, but it's very clear that it's meant to be the same person which cements the connection Plutarch is drawing here. We are in cave incubation soul journey territory. 
See episode 16 of the podcast for more on caves, catalepsy, and soul journeying in the ancient Pythagorean context. So, what happened down there? First, there was darkness. Then, Timarchus prayed and spent a long time in a state where he didn't know whether he was awake or dreaming. Incidentally, the liminal state between sleep and waking, known as the hypnagogic state, is a wonderful place to have visions, or if you want, hallucinations. And it seems to have been cultivated by ancient practitioners of epiphany, or gods appearing to you, as we shall see again when we get to Iamblichus and his practice of theurgy. For Iamblichus, too, refers explicitly to the state of hypnagogy in the context of otherworldly apparitions. So, in this state, where he doesn't know if he's awake or asleep, he heard a crash. He was struck on the head, and the sutures of his skull opened, releasing his soul. Timarchus's soul mixes with the translucent, pure air. Here we are again in the sublunary elemental region. And then he hears something revolving overhead. Here follows a rather psychedelic description of the cosmos. We don't get the journey motif as we did in our previous myth, and which we find in so many apocalypses and the like. Timarchus instead seems to stay in one place, as far as we're told, but he can now see everything. The earth is gone, but he sees multicolored islands all around, of different sizes lit by soft fire and changing hue. These, it becomes clear, are the planets. Their circular motions are what makes the whirring noise he hears, which is a gentle harmony of the spheres. In the midst of this harmony, there is a sea or lake. This is probably the Milky Way, into which the colors pass and some sail out again into a channel, which is probably the zodiac, across the current, which is probably the celestial equator, which is the fastest moving portion of the sky to human observers here on Earth. And there's many other islands being carried around altogether. These would be the fixed stars. And the whole sea, again, the Milky Way, drifts around in an even circle. So this planetary motion stuff continues for a while, all in this kind of nautical metaphor. The whole thing is like a sea that he's sort of drifting in, and all the planets are islands moving through the sea. We're summarizing here, and also conjecturing, but it is anyway completely clear that Plutarch, or rather Plutarch's Timarchus, is describing a Hellenistic cosmos in which the planets and stars are psychedelic colored islands in motion, and that there are various larger objects, the sea, the channel, the current, which interact with the grand circular motion of the whole. So it's a complex, moving, rather colorful and splendid spectacle. Timarchus then looked down and saw a horrible yawning abyss this would be the mythical Tartaros, though Plutarch doesn't name it, full of horrible darkness and with lots of blood-curdling screams coming out of it. Then, a disembodied voice is heard, asking, Timarchus, shall I explain? So here we have the guide figure, presumably a daimon, but he's never named or seen. He lays out for Timarchus a division of the whole cosmos into four zones, in which the traditional underworld, or Hades, is mapped onto the Earth. So this makes perfect sense from a Platonist perspective, if you think about it. The Earth is the realm of least reality, the realm of decay and death, and so forth, while the heavens are everlasting, and the hypercosmic noose 
is eternal and beyond time altogether. And this equation of the earth with the underworld also plays on the ancient Orphic pun of Soma Sema, that the body, Soma, is a tomb, Sema, upon which Plato cites, and thus sort of immortalized for the tradition. The path up, out of Hades, is guarded by the moon, which allows the souls of the righteous to pass by her, but blasts evil souls with lightnings and kind of screams at them and sends them back from whence they came back into incarnation. Different souls are seen. Some of them have a buoy attached to the top of them, keeping with the sea imagery from earlier in our myth. This buoy helps them float upwards. This, the voice explains, is their noose, or at least what most people know as the noose, but really, it is a daimon. Now follows a passage quite similar to that in the Desera, with some souls sort of spinning round in confusion while others are moving upwards steadily. We learn much of the post-mortem fate of the soul, and then the daimon dismisses Timarchus with the words, You'll know more in three months. For now, go. Timarchus feels another pain in his head and wakes up in the cave. He dies three months later at Athens. End of story. So, Plutarch is telling us that the daimon is the noose, that our personal highest cognitive principle or epistemological faculty, noose, is in fact a sort of personal mini-god. This explains Socrates' daimonion, and presumably we could all have a daimonion if we were as hip as Socrates, since we all can in principle exercise noose. We also learn more about the astral afterlife in this piece. The souls not only go up, but become involved in the whole complex cosmic circulation, almost certainly involving the Milky Way, the Zodiac, and other celestial places. This reflects the influence, of course, of Hellenistic astrology-astronomy on Platonist philosophy, and indeed on philosophy and religion more generally in our era, and we shall see it again and again in the podcast. Indeed, an astrological element to soul travel seems to have become a common Platonist belief, with some thinkers placing more and some less importance on it, but it's pretty much always there. As we shall see with Macrobius in the 5th century, a very late Platonist, by his time it is very elaborate and fully astrologized. If you want to know how souls come and go after death, study astrology. But already in the 2nd century with Plutarch we're seeing here an elaborate theoretical construct. How literally it's meant to be taken is another story, but it is safe to say that it was meant to be taken at least as a probable account of the things beyond the grave. Plato's story of the winged souls in the Phaedrus is of course a key model here, but there's no real astronomical detail there except that the forms are depicted as being outside the sphere of the fixed stars. In Plutarch's account, we get to see the terrain along the way. First, you have to get through these elemental realms to the moon. If the moon lets you pass, you're on your way to the hypercosmic noose, presumably. I love what Plutarch does here with the themes of catabasis and ascent. To go up, you first must go down into a cave. But there, beneath the earth, you're looking down on the cosmos from a bird's eye vantage point, And you learn that the earth herself is, in fact, Hades, the underworld. Plato was the ultimate master of taking ancient tropes like catabasis and ascent and kind of mashing them up 
for totally new philosophic effects, but in this work I think Plutarch proves himself a worthy heir to his master. There's a lot more that could be said about this, but for reasons of time we're going to have to let it go, but listeners should think about the way up is down and down is up in this account. And we should also point out that the important mystic image of the heavens beneath the earth, the midnight sun, which we've seen before in our discussions of Orphism and in side notes about Virgil's Aeneid, is a major esoteric theme appearing here and it will appear again down the ages. Now then, there is a third myth which we must discuss. The lunar tale of de facie quien orbe lunae apparet, or on the face visible in the moon. This one is missing its beginning, but that's actually okay, because we're not that interested in Plutarch's ideas about lunar physics or why there seems to be a man in the moon. What we want is the myth, and boy do we get it. So, we have Lamprias, one of Plutarch's sons, in dialogue with a certain Sulla, a good Roman name. This Sulla is a guy from Carthage. We don't know that much about him. It's Sulla who tells the myth to Lamprias, and this myth was told to him by a well-traveled stranger. The stranger, it seems, had visited an island far to the west of Britain. And a whole geography is given here, which we have to skip over for reasons of time, except to note that elements of Plato's Atlantis myth are being refashioned alongside other lore, including some garbled knowledge of far northern lands where the sun hardly sets in the summertime, because on this, this distant western island there's only uh, one hour of darkness a day. Now, there are Greeks living on a great continent nearby, and every 30 years, when the star of Cronus, that's the planet Saturn, enters the sign of the bull, these Greeks send a flotilla to one of the islands. On this island, the titan Cronus lies sleeping, imprisoned in a shining cave by Zeus. He is served by birds and by ministering daimones who live on the island. Cronus is dreaming. In fact, he's sort of doing a titanic cave incubation, if you come to think about it. And he sees in his dreams all the plans of Zeus. And then he talks in his sleep and the daimones hear him, so the daimones can thus prophesy the future. The Greeks who come to this island every 30 years, they stay there for 30 years serving the sleeping titan and learning secret knowledge from these daimones. And that is how the stranger learned what he knows about the fate of the soul and its relation to the moon. So I hope that's all clear. Sulla is telling Lamprius a story he heard from this mysterious traveler, this stranger, who has been to this crazy island of Kronos in the far west. Let me just stop here and say that about this story that A, there is way more detail to it and it's all really, really weird, and B, this is such a cool frame narrative that I don't even know what else to say about it except dig. So what does this stranger tell Sulla about the moon? Well, it's esoteric. The stories told about Demeter and Persephone, this would be the central myth, or Hieros Logos, of the mysteries of Eleusis. Definitely look up this myth if you aren't familiar with it, because nothing about this account will make sense unless you know the basics of the story. This myth is in fact esoterically about the sun and the moon. 
Persephone is the moon, and the stories of her time spent each year in Hades are actually accounts of her waxing, waning, and cyclical disappearance. Okay, so it's an astral myth. But then the stranger expands, and we see the familiar Plutarch as esoteric exegete. Homer is brought in, more myths are mustered, ritual practices are discussed, all concealing a deep philosophic meaning, which can maybe be boiled down to this. Everyone knows that the human being is composite, but they often think this means body plus soul equals a human being. No. The human being is made up of body plus soul plus noose. The noose being superior to the soul just as the soul is superior to the body. These are each given by a deity stroke planet. So Earth Demeter gives us the body, the moon stroke Persephone gives us the soul, and the noose comes from the sun, drawing on the sun simile from Plato's Republic in a totally genius way. So check this out. When a human being dies, he goes to the moon, where he dwells without a body. This is his first death. And at this point, as a soul with a noose, he is, wait for it, a daimon. As such, he may go back to Earth and become one of the daimones who do daimonic things, like giving oracular messages, helping humans out in warfare or at sea, or presumably he could even minister to the sleeping Cronus, one assumes. We could also adduce the Isis and Osiris story from the last episode. They too were daimones, but they graduated to become gods later on. And if we wanted to bring in a unitary reading of Plutarch, and this is totally irresponsible, by the way, but I'm going to say it anyway, we could conclude that Isis and Osiris must have earlier been human beings who graduated to being daimones, which might explain how Plutarch understands the Eohemeris strand to his interpretive framework in On Isis and Osiris. But anyway, I digress. After some time as a daimon, the daimon may be sent back to being a human if he's acted through anger or done other things unworthy of a daimon who is expected to basically act like a disembodied Platonist. If, on the other hand, he's excelled, been a good daimon, delivered good oracles or whatever a good daimon does, he may finally die the second death and pass beyond the moon and on to a truly blessed fate, which Plutarch leaves unspecified except that it is blessed and divine. Sulla ends his account with the words, It's up to you, Lamprius, to make of the story what you will. End of work. Now, with this story, we really have skipped a lot of good stuff. Lots more gods and goddesses appear. Hecate, two Hermeses, a Chthonic and a Celestial Hermes, and many more. There's a whole story of elements drawing on the old academic Xenocrates, whose works are mostly lost, making this an important source for reconstructing his ideas. Lots of ideas about the moon and myths about the moon and lore about the moon. She's much bigger than the geometers think. There is a true moon, cognate to the true earth of Plato's Phaedo, which is perhaps some kind of otherworldly counterpart to the moon we see, and it's full of hollows and caverns and craters where different things happen to the souls living there. All this and more. Definitely check this myth out. 
it's full of amazing stuff and there's nowhere near enough time in one podcast episode to get into it all. Now here we have three amazing accounts of the soul's fate after death, all of them concerned with the region between the earth and the moon, but also bringing in the cosmos at large, but all of them quite different in many details. Now, what is Plutarch doing with these stories? He's doing some obvious things and some less obvious things and maybe some esoteric things. And some of those we might not even be able to put our finger on anymore because so much is happening in the texts which we don't quite understand. Let's look at each of these things in turn. Obvious things. Plutarch is, of course, riffing on the dialogue format here with its many frame narratives and nested literary voices, and in so doing, he's continuing a tradition started by Plato. He's also doing this in a Platonist universe. Not necessarily Plato's universe, I want to emphasize, but a universe which made sense to a middle Platonist, which is a different matter. Astronomy astrology has been taken on board and become part of the account of how the soul exists after death, based, of course, on hints in Plato, but elaborated along lines drawing on the rich astronomical tradition of the Hellenistic period. Plutarch is also showing off his virtuostic command of folklore, antiquarian curiosities, and just a general love of the curious and occult, as in his subversive account of Trophonius's oracle, or the truly odd myth of the sleeping Kronos. For all of which, we thank him from the bottom of our hearts, because this is amazing stuff. Much has been written about all this. See the recommended reading section to this podcast. And much, too, has been written about the elaborate and sometimes quite baffling interplay between the twin ideas of logos and mythos in these works, which is very relevant when we turn to our next topic, namely, what is Plutarch doing here that is less obvious? Well, this is harder to answer, obviously. Haha. <laughs> One thing that sticks out here is that the tale from the De Facie, the one we've just looked at, with all its folkloric detail and esoteric interpretation, is actually more in line with what we've seen of Plutarch the Exegete in our earlier episodes on the philosopher of Geronea. He's drawing in loads of material from here and there, mixing it up with Plato, and drawing out of it concealed philosophic wisdom. On some points, it's very clear he's being dead serious. So, for example, the tripartite human being of body, soul, and noose. This is clearly meant to be taken as a doctrinal certitude. This is how reality is. But there's also a kind of shading off into regions of creative storytelling. And surely the frame narrative with the bizarre travel story and the mysterious stranger from the land of Kronos, all of this is meant to emphasize this point. We're clearly meant to read this work as a kind of jeu d'esprit with a serious philosophic purpose, but not to be taken literally. So the question is, where do we draw the line between the clearly serious, set-in-stone ideas stuff, and the mythological games Plutarch is playing? We can't. And here Plutarch, and maybe the second sophistic more generally, is actually, I think, really in touch with the kind of literary playing with the truth that Plato is the ultimate master of. When you read these elegant, playful myths, and then look at earlier schools, like the po-faced Hellenistic Stoics and Epicureans, or at later thinkers, the late Platonists like Plotinus and Iamblichus, for whom everything is dead serious. When you look at either of these types of philosophy, you get the feeling 
that there was a sort of window into a very platonic way of thinking about writing philosophy that kind of opened at the beginning of the second century and was closed again by its end. So I think Plutarch and second sophistic Platonists like Apuleius, whom we will be discussing in short order, really do have a certain Platonic quality to the way they write that no other Platonists of antiquity have. And what is Plutarch doing in the De Genio and the De Sera, where he isn't drawing on traditional mythic elements so much as making the whole thing up from scratch? With a hefty dose of Plato, to be sure, but there's no pretension here that this is really some kind of ancient story he heard. Whereas in the De Facie, there are genuine ancient stories under examination, like the Demeter-Persephone myth cycle. So he's working with genuine traditional materials there, much like he did in On Isis and Osiris. But in these other two myths, he's just crafting a myth. What significance does a fabricated myth have for a thinker like Plutarch, who believes that genuine philosophic myths and mystic institutions were founded by godlike men of the distant past, or even by the gods themselves, with a view to concealing secret wisdom from the masses. Does Plutarch feel that he is himself perhaps contributing to this store of collected esoteric myth? In other words, is he trying to do the same sort of thing as Isis did when she founded the Mysteries of Isis and Osiris and wrote down her story in hieroglyphics or whatever? The question arises here of how serious, in quotes, you need to be to be seriously writing the truth. And this is maybe the heart of what's going on here, esoterically, in Plutarch's myths. It seems to me that Plutarch's approach here really is quite platonic. He's riffing on all kinds of stuff he's heard and thought about. He's not afraid to make totally new configurations with traditional materials. And he isn't afraid to leave the truth status of the whole thing open. In fact, in each case we've looked at in this episode, the narrator of the myth says words to the effect of, this might be a logos, or it might be a mythos. You decide for yourself. So it's overtly ambiguous. And I think Plato would have approved. Right. We promised you more Trophonius, and here at the Schwepp, we like to keep our promises, especially when Chthonic deities are involved. So we shall say a fond farewell to the elegant and esoteric Plutarch, and move into some material which has been waiting in the wings for a long time. It's finally time to revisit the realm of dreams. Join us next time for a look at Greek Incubation Cult, with more on esoteric and oracular dreaming to follow that. Until then, be like the Hieros Logos of Demeter and Persephone, and stay esoteric. <laughs>